if I could preach chapter 7 in like three or four sermons, I'd rather it that way. But instead, we got one. So it's going to be, we're going to be a little high level. And, uh, and so I, I want to ask you guys to, to kind of pay attention to some of the context. And then also as we're reading through, um, and, and be mindful as we read through the passage in just a moment. But for those of you that remember, Hebrews is one long argument, or you could call it a diatribe. It's all connected. Everything's connected by a therefore, or a since then, or a consequently. It's all one huge argument that is supporting Jesus Christ and his superiority in every single way. And so, as we know, any good argument builds upon itself, right? So let's do some quick re recap. The author of Hebrews states pretty clearly multiple times, but especially in chapter one, that Jesus fulfills and fills three offices. Anybody tell me what those three are? Prophet, Prophet there's one. Priest. Priest. King. Okay. Yep. So those are the three. And for an Israelite who awaited the Messiah, they would have expected that a Messiah king would come through the line of David, what tribe? Judah. Judah. Yeah, right? Because kings come from that tribe, right? From the tribe of Judah, um, from the line of David, right? And then also prophetic prophecy kind of said that the Messiah would come through David, through the tribe of Judah. So, so expectant, faithful Israelites would have awaited this in eager expectations, and that was a proper expectation. Additionally, faithful Israelites who knew their Old Testaments well they would have also been reading the scriptures and they would have said, you know what, I think we have not just a Messiah king coming, but we have a Messiah high priest coming. And for those people who, who saw that, and, and many did during that time, when they awaited the Messiah, they would have expected a high priestly Messiah to come. Now, what tribe would the high priestly Messiah come from? Levi. Did Jesus come through the tribe of Levi? No, he didn't. Okay. But it's not a bad assumption, right? If you're an Israelite, you're reading through and you're like, There's, it, he's going to be a king, but he's also going to be a high priest. He's coming through Judah. But to be a high priest, you come through the, the, the line of Levi, right? So during that time, faithful Israelites, many of them believed that there would be two messiahs coming. And they were waiting for two messiahs. And they actually thought that there would be a king messiah and a priestly messiah. And so these were not, and these were not, uh, this was not a bad expectation, and this is why many Israelites had this expectation. And, you know, for us, we may say, all right, you know, no big deal, right? We, we have the New Testament, we have the knowledge that we need to have, we know that Jesus is both, he's prophet, priest, and king, that's not an issue for us, right? But for the Israelites, they wouldn't have that same perspective. In fact, some of them may have even struggled with this. They would have struggled with this because they knew their scriptures well. And for them, they would go to the scripture, the thing that they knew to be confident in and they knew that was reliable to say, could Jesus, could he be the one? Or are we waiting for another Messiah? Or is he the one? Or is he not the one, right? These were the questions that were floating about. And this is why the book of Hebrews is written. And so naturally, they were going to evaluate Jesus by what they had available, which was, you know, the scriptures, the Old Testament. I remember back in 2008, and I remember it pretty well, because it was by, right about the time when I was starting to, like, just kind of be interested in politics. And I remember at the time, the then presidential uh, candidate, Barack Obama, there was a big argument uh, uh, that went about. And the whole argument was, was about whether he had a birth certificate. And, and that birth certificate would have would have shown that he was an American citizen or a natural-born citizen. 
And I'm sure people took it to nasty places, right, this argument. But, but initially, it, it didn't come about just because Americans were like prejudiced or something. It came about because it was important. Our founding fathers thought it important. Our, uh, our, our, our founding documents, right, our, the laws of the land say that it's important for the leader of the United States to be a natural-born citizen. So people debated, and they discussed that, right? Well, much like that, the author of Hebrews is seeking to produce the birth certificate, if you will, for Jesus and his ability to be the high priest, high priestly Messiah. And frankly, he needs to prove the legitimacy of Jesus and his high priestly status from a legitimate and recognizable platform. And so what he does to his Jewish audience, he goes to the Old Testament. And this is where we get King Melchizedek. Have you guys heard of King Melchizedek? If you haven't heard of him at all, that's okay. He's actually pretty obscure. Um, and so we get to King Melchizedek. There's this story all the way back in Genesis, and, uh, and that's where he enters into the picture. And so we're going to address this topic. This is kind of our context that has been built. And one more question before we jump in. How many of you guys realize that the author of Hebrews has mentioned this Melchizedek guy a couple times before chapter 7? A couple of you. Can anybody tell me how many times previous to chapter 7 he mentions Melchizedek? It's okay to take a shot in the dark. Whoa, three. Who said that? Wow. All right. You get a free t-shirt if Mariah says so. Um, <laughs> so yeah, three times. Three times he's mentioned it. And each time it is in reference to Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that's, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And, and if some dots are starting to connect, that's good. If not, it's okay. We'll, we'll catch up. And so what I want to do is, is go ahead and turn your Bibles. We'll read the whole chapter. It's, it's 28 verses. It's a little bit of a long haul, um, but we'll, we'll make it together. Chapter 7, verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those whose descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. 
For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he upholds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray over our passage tonight. Heavenly Father, we come to you now again, and we thank you for your word. Even the passages that are sometimes a little hard to understand, and not a whole lot else to go to to understand it better. But God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Hebrews. We we thank you for um, the, the man that you inspired to write it, even though we don't know his name. And God, I pray that through this passage, even if he has a funny name, we can learn from Melchizedek. And we can learn to know you better and know your plan for us better and that we can know the gospel better and all of that. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's a big chapter, right? How many of you guys are like, you were tracking and then you got a little lost in the middle because it's just, it's a little hard to, it's a little hard to follow. Um, I felt lost when I was reading through it, just working on this sermon. And so we'll jump in and we'll, 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 we'll explain it. We'll get there. Um, so after, so the author of Hebrews, after chapter 6, if we look at verse 20, he actually mentions, he says, where Jesus has gone, chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, and he jumps into chapter 7. So after, you know, kind of casually mentioning Melchizedek a couple times, the author of Hebrews is, finally goes into more detail on this crazy priest, king of Salem dude. Now, Scott Volner grew up in Salem, and he would probably agree with me that, you know, if I heard that there was a crazy priest king down in Salem, I'd steer clear of the area. I'd be having some major Tiger King vibes there. Um, but this is a very different type of Salem, and, uh, and, and Salem actually is potentially the Jerusalem, so Jerusalem. It's potentially Jerusalem before it was even named Jerusalem, because remember, this is, this is Melchizedek and Abraham. This is way before Moses even, um, and, and, and way before coming out of Egypt and the Exodus and all of that. Um, so this is a very different Salem. It, it means peace. And, uh, and one thing that's very interesting that we don't have time to properly get into, and so we won't, but um, Hebrews actually has the most extensive amount of writing on this King Melchizedek guy. And, and you just heard it just now. The only other passages that we have that talk about King Melchizedek is Genesis chapter 14, which we'll just summarize. That's the actual story that we have. And then he's mentioned one other time in Psalm 110. And outside of that, Hebrews is the only other biblical space dedicated to this Melchizedek guy. And so very quickly, before we jump in and start to break things down, what was the original story in Genesis? Genesis chapter 14, you can turn there if you like, um, but we'll just summarize it. It starts with Abraham and Lot. You guys remember those guys? Abraham, had many sons, you know, he was that guy. And then Lot, what was he? 
cousin, nephew, something. Yeah, they were family members. And they were traveling together, and, uh, and, and at a certain point, they'd become too large. Their clans had become too large. They had to separate. And so Lot went one way. Abraham went the other way. Um, God's pretty much blessing them both. But at a certain point, um, Lot finds himself getting into some serious trouble. Lot had been captured by some kings, some bad kings. And uh, Abraham, whom we generally kind of associate to look like the oldest dude at our church, right? Just kind of in general. But like the oldest dude in our church, Abraham also used to be young too. He wasn't always old father Abraham. Abraham was a pretty powerful dude. He actually was a, 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 uh, a war general. He had an entire army at his disposal. And when these kings kidnapped Lot and his family, and probably were going to sell him to slavery or something, Abraham said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. So he went down and he whipped the tar out of these kings. He took the spoils from war, of war, rescued Lot. And on his way back to wherever he came from initially is where Melchizedek comes in. And he meets this Melchizedek guy, and, and he, he goes up to them, and, and, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils of war. They exchange a few more words, and that's pretty much it. And we don't really hear from him a whole lot until the book of Hebrews. And the most interesting thing probably about the story of Genesis is not what Melchizedek does, but it's how he's introduced. It's how he's described. And Hebrews parrots most of that. And so we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna, we need to jump back into our passage here to start to work through what this all means for us, what it means about Jesus, and, and how we can apply it. Like, like how, how does this, how does this you know, come into our theology in a good um, and practical way? And so back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Read with me a little bit here. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. All right, there's a lot to unpack there, but first thing that's, that's worth noting is that Abraham didn't grow up in church hearing about how you're supposed to give you know, a tenth, right, a tithe, right? In fact, this is like the first kind of mention of a tithe in a sense, but this is kind of a big deal, you know? You're a victorious warlord, Abraham, right? I'm not trying to paint him as a bad guy, but like he just came back from war. He has the spoils of war. He obviously probably had some casualties too. He decides to give this guy 10% of everything, right? That's interesting, okay? So that's interesting to note. The second thing that's interesting to note is part of how Melchizedek is described here. Part of how he's described is the, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but generally the only person in the Bible that I can think of that is consistently labeled as both righteousness and peace is Jesus Christ himself. And so this is where we start to see, um, you know, and, and if, if we had four sermons, I'd dive down into some of the weird stuff, right? But, but this is where, you know, some people start to say, okay, maybe Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And, and not a type as in like he is a Christ, but, but, what, but a type of Christ as in the same way that David was, right? A foreshadowing, or Moses was, you know, leading the people out of slavery, right? A, a typology, a type of Christ. And so some people say, well, Melchizedek was certainly that. Some people also go um, in a different direction, and they say, well, Melchizedek maybe could have been a pre-incarnate version, a pre-incarnate representation of Jesus himself all the way back then. Um, and there's some other possible possibilities, too. But either way, um, we don't have to get into all that, and we don't have time to. But either way, we do know these things about Melchizedek, okay? And so as we're moving forward into verse 3, it says, 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So again, a lot of things that we could dive into, but one important note here is that he continues as a priest forever because he has no end of his life. That's pretty cool, right? We'll get back to that later. That's, that's, that's important. We'll get back to that later. Verses 4 through 6. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and, is, and blessed him who had the promises." So Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils, right? And, and, and we talked about that. That's kind of a big deal. He's like, here you go, king of peace, king of righteousness, king Melchizedek, dude. Here's a tenth of my spoils. And, you know, these are the type of stories where you're like, I just wish I could have seen what else happened, right? But we don't, we don't get it all. Then moving on into verse 7, it says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So here we start to see some of the argument kind of come together. And if you guys are lost, I'm sorry, but this will be a test. Who or what two groups maybe or what two types of people is the author of Hebrews juxtaposing right now? Like, who is he kind of comparing? Well, okay, so there's Melchizedek, right? Who is he comparing Melchizedek to? Kind of Jesus, but we're not there yet. Who does he mention a couple times? The Levites. Why is that important? Well, they're both priests, okay? So the author of Hebrews is talking about King Melchizedek, who's a priestly line, and then the Levites, who are a priestly line. And Hebrews states that the order of Melchizedek is essentially a higher order. Why does it say that? Well, it says because Abraham blessed him, and Abraham is the one who had the promises. And he goes even to say, well, in verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, you know, the one that all the priests came from, it, it, that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, Right? So what the author of Hebrews is, is, is talking about here is that, that these are two lines of priests, and Melchizedek is from an earlier line of priests, a, a, a more respected, if you will, a um, maybe even a better line of priests. But, but that's kind of where the argument is, is going here. And he even goes as far as to say that it is as if Levi himself tithed to Melchizedek as a priest, so a priest tithing to a greater high priest, um, because he was still in the loins of Abraham. Loins is a word that we don't use a word very often, and it's not the most comfortable word to use, but it gets the, it gets the, it gets the point across, right? And so what, the, what has the author of Hebrews done here so far before we move into the next section? Well, first off, we kind of need to give him props for being a pretty, pretty skilled debater, a pretty skilled expositor of Scripture, um, and, and, and props for having a fierce mind to defend uh, Jesus and his offices and to go into the Old Testament and say, and of course guided by the Holy Spirit, to say, this is maybe how Jesus is a high priest, right? Um, but now we also have a little bit better of understanding of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, which is where we left off last semester. So 6, verse 19 and 20, we'll read those real quick. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Behind the curtain, that's only where the high priest goes. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We understand a little bit better what he's saying there. And now the author has painted a little bit of a picture where Jesus' priestly order coming after Melchizedek is one that is higher, older, maybe more respected than that of even the tribe of Levi. So we don't have the whole picture yet, but we can move into the next section with a little bit of a maybe cloudy thought in our mind that Jesus' priestly order being from Melchizedek is actually a little bit cooler than being from the order of Levi or Aaron. And so there's that. Let's move into verses 11 through 19. So read with me verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people who received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. He's talking about the tribe of Judah. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So we see a couple things here. Most notable is the acknowledgement from the author of Hebrews that no, no Israelite from, from the tribe of Judah has ever served in the priesthood, okay? And we know that Jesus came through that tribe, right? So he's, he's acknowledging that, um, and he's also acknowledging that Moses didn't say anything about priests from that tribe, which is really the context for this entire section of arguments, right? And again, you know, we're removed from this, right? We don't have to, you know, we haven't had to engage with this, like, man, could Jesus be the Messiah because he didn't come from Levi? That's something they would have been thinking about. We don't have to think about that. That's awesome that we don't have to. Um, the Bible has cleared that up for us, but we can understand where they're at a little bit better. And so he goes on then to discuss how the Levites, they do a good job, right? But what does he say about the Levites, the priests? What's he say about them? What happens to them? They die. Yes, they die. The priests eventually die, right? They do a good job, but they die. You know which priest lives forever? Well, apparently Melchizedek. But we also know that Jesus lives forever, right? He's not going to die. He's not going to die again after the resurrection, and so this is where he kind of gets to his big point in verses 15 and 16 when he says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, talking about Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, right? He didn't come through the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. And so this is where he gets to his big point is that he's saying that Jesus has been proclaimed a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not and, and Melchizedek was before the Levites too, right? And that proclamation of being a high priest is not based on genealogy, but instead it's been earned through a prophetic proclamation and the resurrection, okay? And so this is where he goes on to quote Psalm 110, which is the other point where Melchizedek is, uh, is brought up in, in Scripture. So verse 17, it says, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so this oath is the proclamation of Psalm 110. When we read Psalm 110, that's what he's talking about. 
that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the Israelites likely knew this psalm. They, they, were, they very much would have known this psalm. This would have been a psalm that would have led them to believe. They wouldn't have put all the pieces together, but this would have led them to believe that they would have an expectation of a priestly Messiah, a high priestly Messiah. This would have been one of them. And they would have used this to assert that the priestly Messiah would come. And so some of this can feel like a little bit of biblical gymnastics, you know, to be honest with you. Um, but I can almost promise you that, that the Israelites, who would have been well studied in their scripture, when they would have been reading through Hebrews chapter 7, they would have been like, whoa, boom, lights going on, boom, wow, like mind blown. They would have been like, this is a masterful argument that he's putting together here. And so before we leave this section, what's, what's the point of it? Well, ultimately, it's that the order of Melchizedek is better than the order of Levites. It's that Jesus is from that order, and he is a better priest because he lives forever. His priesthood is legitimate, and the linchpin here, kind of how he's you know, convincing the Jews, is that, that Abraham is the one who acknowledges this priestly order. And Abraham's like right up there with Moses in terms of like the Jewish you know, community's respect for you know, biblical prophets and, and forefathers. And so for everyone to understand, not just Jews in the first century, Jesus has become a priest, not by human descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's what the book of Hebrews says. And we'll talk briefly about why that is important um, in, our, in our last section here. So moving into verse 20, 20 through 24 here. It says, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And so Hebrews quotes another passage from Psalm 110. And then he makes the statement that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, of a better covenant. The, the Levitical priests helped to guarantee the old covenant through the sacrificial system, but Jesus guarantees a better covenant because he never dies. You know, a couple years ago, I guess, I guess, I guess about eight years ago, is when my grandpa passed away. And one of the things that, you know, looking back, um, I think that probably all of us in the family realized was that you know, kind of the important part that he played in our family, kind of just as the, the patriarch at the time of our family. Um, and, and part of that is because slowly but surely and for a number of reasons, you know, our, our, our families kind of started to split. And, 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 and we don't, you know, have a ton of relationships. There's a little bit of relationships here and there between the families, but we don't get together for Christmas anymore. And, and, and things are just not the same ever since he passed away. And one of the things that I think we all realized uh, was that he was the one that kind of held us together. He was the guarantor of our family unit. He was, the, he was the glue that made it stick. But because he died, he could not guarantee that forever. And that's kind of the point that Hebrews is making here, is that whatever you and I accomplish in our lifetime, good or bad, there's no way we can guarantee that it continues on, right? There's no guarantee that we have that, that our legacy will last when, when great men and women die, there's no guarantee that, that people will follow after their, their forefathers. I mean, there's just no guarantee of that. But with Jesus, there is. And that's part of what Hebrews is making a point here. Jesus will live forever, and he will personally guarantee his priesthood before God the Father forever. 
on behalf of those he will live forever. And it is because of this that in verse 25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, we, we, have, to, we have to get into the minds of the Jews, to, to the Israelites, to understand how important this is. You see, the Israelites had just come off of, uh, they're, they're, they're currently kind of, they're, they're occupied by Rome, right? And we don't know exactly when Hebrews was written, but it's like right around temple destruction time. And at least if it's not, they know that that's a possibility, okay? Previously in their history, they were exiled. And what did that mean? No, no temple, no priests, no Levites offering sacrifices to God for the, for the, for the forgiveness of their sins, Okay. And so this is super important theology here, right? Because when there's an exile, when the temple is destroyed, nobody's making sacrifices for sins. That's a, that's a big deal, right? And so when Jesus comes and the author of Hebrews is saying, hey guys, don't worry. Not only has Jesus, will Jesus never die, he's never going to be exiled, he's never going to be, he's not bound by the temple, but he also is going to offer a sacrifice once and for all. No more sacrifices needed. So if the temple gets destroyed, okay, bummer. If our entire culture and heritage gets destroyed, okay, bummer. But you know what's not going to be destroyed? Jesus. You know who's never going to die? Jesus. You know who's going to live forever and is going to represent us to the Father? Jesus. Verses 26 through 28 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the priest that we need. He offers the sacrifice that we need. And he holds the blessing that we need. You know, when we, when we think, we take a step back from all the theology stuff, right? When we think about just what Abraham did practically, right, in, in that story with Melchizedek. What did he do? He went up, he gave him a tenth of his war spoils, and then Melchizedek blessed him. And if Melchizedek is kind of a type of Christ, kind of looking forward to Christ, right, you know, we, we can make a little bit of a connection here. As the author of Hebrews points out earlier, it's the inferior that's blessed by the superior, right? The inferior gives ties to the superior, right? We know that. That's just, that's just how things work, right? The government's superior to us. They tax us, right? And so when we think about approaching our king priest, who comes from the line of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, most of us will never be able to offer the material riches that Abraham was able to offer to King Melchizedek, Right? Most of us will never amount to that much. I mean, you know, frankly, to be honest, I mean, we're talking about like the 10th of, you know, uh, the material riches of a large city, right? Springfield or something. Not St. Louis, that's way too big. Kansas City, yeah, yeah. Um, but most of us will never be able to do that, right? We'll never amount to anything close to that from a material perspective. And at first glance, that's kind of a big deal. It's a big problem because Jesus is the high priest that we need. He has the blessing that we need. But here's the good part. Hebrews never says that we have to offer a tenth of the spoils of a large city in Midwest America, okay? What it does say is that if we draw near to God through him, he will save us to the uttermost, verse 25. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Jesus will live forever making intercession before God on behalf of our sins as long as that is necessary. That is the promise to Abraham fulfilled. That is the new covenant. That is the law fulfilled. That is the blessing of a powerful Savior. Now, as we take a step back, I acknowledge you guys, me, we may all not have needed a, a kind of intense Israelite history lesson, right, to understand that Jesus is a rightful and legitimate high priest, to understand the basics of the gospel, that, that he that he goes to God before us on our behalf, that he was himself the sacrifice for us, right? We don't maybe need to be convinced of that, that Jesus is the one who makes righteousness and peace possible for his people. But as I was, as I was uh, writing this sermon, and it's coincidentally, the worship team played this song, which was pretty cool. I was kind of singing the song in my head, Oh God, How I Need You. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. And uh, it was super cool that you guys ended up playing that song. Um, but I started thinking about that, and I thought to myself, you know, who do we need a defense from? Is it the world? Not really. Because, frankly, you know, the, the, the world will kind of chew us up and spit us out regardless of which side of the aisle we're on, Okay? The one that we need a defense from is God the Father. We need a defense from the wrath of a holy God coming down upon our sins. That's what we need a defense from. And Jesus is that defense for us. He's provided the atonement for our sins. And this is what the high priests of Levi did for the people. They sacrificed animals. They provided atonement for their sins and then for the sins of the people. They did it day in and day out and day in and day out. And it was a blood sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of an unholy people that have no chance of making it to a relationship with God. That's what they did. And that's why this is important, that Jesus fulfills this. And that's why we are in desperate need of a high priest who is perfect and who will live forever. And it doesn't matter if a temple gets destroyed. It doesn't matter if our culture is wiped from the face of the earth. Kingdoms come and go, but Jesus will never die. And he will never stop fulfilling his promise to go to the Father before us on behalf of our sins. I want to close kind of in reading verses 26 and 27. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is our high priest who will live forever. He's the one who will be our defense. He's the one who paid the price by atoning for our sins. And not only do we need a priest who will live forever, but we also need a sacrifice that will pay the price forever. And Jesus says, done and done, draw near to me, draw near to the Father through me. That's the gospel. That's the message of this chapter, and that's the gospel, that we draw near to Jesus and we make it to the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the ability to be here tonight. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. 
We thank you for the depth of some of the passages of Scripture, but we also thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. We thank you for the not just incredible plan that you wove throughout human history to save us, to bring Jesus, to, to defy insurmountable odds and insurmountable uh, problems with, with making it happen, Lord, and, and finding a way to bring us back to you, to bring us back to the garden in union with you. But Lord, we thank you for the actual sacrifice that it took. We thank you that Hebrews is a book that can help us understand that better, understand your masterful plan, but also understand the legitimate sacrifice that it took for you to do that. I thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you for his sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.